Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello, and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Compliance Institute in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, former president of the Compliance Institute and a compliance professional for 20 years, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. As we all know, consumer protection is at the heart of the mandate of the central bank, with one of its statutory objectives being the proper and effective regulation of financial services providers and markets, while ensuring that the best interests of consumers of financial services are protected. Further, the central bank representatives have said that all of the domestic and EU rules falling within its remit must be interpreted against the objective of ensuring that the best interest of consumers are protected. So I'm delighted to welcome today as our uh, our guest, uh, Nora Bozang, solicitor and the author of Consumer and SME Credit Law, published by Bloomsbury, to talk about some consumer protection issues applying to uh, carrying out financial service business in Ireland with a particular focus on lending. So uh, we hope today to touch on matters like the the regulatory framework. We'll go into some some specifics and some of the categories um, of regulated firms in Ireland and especially in relation to lending. We look at that thorny issue of the interpretation of consumer and the definition of, of consumer. It's something that's uh, that's been a particular issue for, for as long as I've been working in compliance. And then we look at high level statutory protections uh, that apply to lending to consumers in Ireland. So with that, I'd like to welcome you, Nora, and thank you very much uh, for taking the time to, to talk to, to me and to our listeners today. Good afternoon, Cathy, and many thanks for having me. So to start off in terms of setting the scene for consumer protection, I wanted to describe the role of the central bank. And as you've said, it's the primary regulator and enforcer of financial services, consumer protection rules in Ireland. Uh, There are certain functions held concurrently with the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, but the central bank is the primary player in a financial services context. The central bank has consistently emphasised the centrality of consumer protection to the work it does. So its mandate, uh, one of its statutory objectives is the proper and effective regulation of financial services and markets while ensuring that the best interests of consumers of financial services are protected. And in its response to the retail banking review, which concluded late last year, the central bank stated that consumer protection is at the heart of the central bank's mandate from achieving price stability through ensuring the effective functioning of the payment system, providing economic advice and providing high quality financial regulation, securing the interests of the citizen is central to what we do. So you can see there that consumer protection is very much writ large in the activities of the central bank in terms of regulation and uh, enforcement. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Those very wide, uh, that very wide statutory mandate um, held by the yeah. central bank. Absolutely, Cathy. I mean, it, it's absolutely a, a notable point in terms of what the, the the framework under which the central bank operates. As you've said, it's a very extensive statutory mandate. Its primary statutory objective 
is to maintain price stability, uh, which has its challenges in this environment. It's also responsible for the overall stability of the financial system, what's known as macro prudential regulation. Then the proper and effective regulation of individual financial services providers, i.e. micro prudential regulation and markets and the efficient and effective operation of payments and settlement systems. It also acts as the resolution authority in the event of bank failure. So interestingly, unlike some other bank conduct regulators, for example, the UK Financial Conduct Authority, the central bank does not have a competition mandate. So by way of background, it did have such a back, uh, mandate between 2003 and 2010. Specifically, one of its functions was the promotion of the development within the state of the financial services industry. But subsequent to the financial crisis and following criticism as to the potential for conflict between that and its regulatory financial stability function, this statutory function was removed from the central bank with effect from the 1st of October 2010. Could you talk to us a bit about how the uh, Central Bank of Ireland as a local regulator, as our domestic regulator, fits in with the, the wider European region? Yeah. Since November 2014, the Central Bank has been a member of the single supervisory mechanism, the SSM. That's the first pillar of banking union. The second pillar is the single resolution mechanism, SRM. And the third pillar is the European Deposit insurance scheme. So SSM is led by the ECB and includes the participating national competent authorities. Now, interestingly, the ECB does not itself have a consumer protection mandate. The recitals to the SSM regulation do say that the ECB should cooperate with competent national authorities to ensure a high level of consumer protection. And the ECB has also made the point that Failures by credit institutions to comply with their conduct obligations may have prudential implications and may therefore raise regulatory concerns for the ECB. For example, where banks are required to pay compensation to customers and fines to the central bank, ECB concerns in those scenarios would be, do those banks hold sufficient capital against operational or conduct risk? And are their governance and internal controls adequate to prevent misconduct? but there's no specific consumer protection mandate held. In contrast, a consumer protection mandate is held by the European Banking Authority. And as you know, one of the core tasks of that body is to bring uniform rules and common supervisory approaches across the EU. So at a domestic level, the central bank regulates and enforces consumer protection rules in the state. And this includes EEA banks that uh, come into Ireland under the EU passporting regime, whether with or without having a, a branch here. So in advertisements, you'll often hear about ex-banks say it's authorised in Germany, and then the advertisement will go on to say that it is regulated by the central bank for conduct of business rules. So turning to lending now, could you give us some a high level picture about the categories of regulated firms in Ireland that carry on the business of lending? And, and paint a picture of, of the numbers and how so many of them are authorised in the state. How many? Sure. OK, so by way of background, lending as a standalone activity, even to consumers, was not a regulated activity. So when I was training, that was certainly the case. And it took some years for that to change. Since February 2008, 
arising from concerns about the activities of lenders in the subprime sector, direct lending to individuals became a regulated activity requiring the lender to be authorized by the central bank. And that's irrespective of the amount of the loan. So in contrast, currently originating a loan to an entity with a legal personality, such as a corporate or an LLP as a standalone activity, does not require the lender to be so authorised. But I should mention there are changes afoot in relation to this. Um, as listeners will be aware, a retail banking review report was issued very recently by the Department of Finance, and the recommendations in that report have been adopted uh, as governmental strategy. So one of the recommendations in that report, which has been adopted as strategy, is that following consultation with stakeholders, including the Central Bank of Ireland, the Department of Finance should prepare legislation to require providers of credit to corporate SMEs to be authorised and supervised by the central bank so that all SME borrowers benefit from the protections of uh, the various central bank regulations, including the SME regulations. So that is to occur following consultation with the central bank, and we can expect that non-bank lenders to corporates will require to be authorised by the central bank. Going back to lending to individuals, uh, at present lending to individuals is likely to be regulated and the lender is likely to take the form of either a credit institution, also known as a bank, a retail credit firm or a credit servicing firm. And it's worth going into a little detail as to the distinction between these entities. So just starting off, first of all, with credit institutions, and these are deposit-taking banks. They're typically authorised by the ECB, and the distinguishing characteristic of credit institutions in comparison with retail credit firms and credit servicing firms is that, as well as lending, banks take deposits from the public. So when they are authorised, the banking business, i.e. the lending business and the taking of deposits, it's subject to regulation as a whole. So because of its deposit taking activity and the risks which flow from it, including primarily really from a financial stability perspective, credit institutions are subject to intensive prudential regulation. And as a quid pro quo to this regulatory burden, licensed EU banks may pass port into other EU jurisdictions, whether on a branch or cross-border basis. And in these scenarios, for an Irish bank, the central bank would be the home state regulator and the local regulator would be the host state regulator in relation to matters such as consumer protection rules. So in terms of the figures that you mentioned, Cathy, as at 5 December 2022, 17 banks have been authorised under the Irish authorisation regime with 29 EU banks authorised to passport into the state on a branch basis and approximately 390 EU banks passported into the state on a cross-border basis, which means they haven't established a formal branch office in Ireland and most of those passporting entities do not carry on retail banking business. So if you'd like me to talk about the other two categories, uh, 
retail credit firms and credit servicing firms. Uh, retail credit firms are non-deposit taking uh, lenders of credit, i.e. originators of credit to natural persons. And this activity, the making of direct loans by non-deposit taking entities to individuals requires the lender to be authorized as a retail credit firm. There are exclusions from this, but they are limited and require the individual to whom the loan is lent to be a relatively active player in the financial markets and to have a financial portfolio exceeding 500,000. So it's quite a high bar in general terms. So carrying on the business of making a direct loan to natural persons will, will generally require authorization subject to that carve out for high net worth individuals. And a point to note is that even if the loan is to the individual for business purposes, as well as personal purposes, the lender is required to be authorized as a retail credit firm. So in terms of the numbers at the start of August, 17 retail credit firms have been registered in the state. Non-bank lenders have increased their share of total new mortgage lending from 3% in 2018 to 13% in 2021. They're responsible for almost one third of new lending in the refinancing and buy to let segments of the markets. And I think I got those figures from the uh, central bank response to the retail banking review, which I'll talk about later on. So just to make the point that non-bank lenders are becoming increasingly prominent and prevalent in the market. And then the final category of regulated firm I'm going to touch on are credit servicing firms. So there's two subcategory of, of these. Uh, there's the firms which own in-scope loans and then those firms that service those loans by managing or administering them. And this latter category, uh, those ones that manage or administer in-scope loans, they've been required to be authorised since 2015, followed in 2019 by the requirement for authorisation of loan owners. And you'll be aware, Cathy, of the background to all of this, that there was considerable public disquiet around the sale of portfolios of distressed loans by uh, regulated banks and to then unregulated entities and concerns around whether the regulatory protections that had attached to those loans when they were lent by banks would then fall away on sale. So the basic imperative for creating the category of credit servicing firm in 2015 was to ensure day one, where the borrower had the benefit of consumer protections, these protections continued where the loan was sold on. Yes, Nora, as you say, I, I do remember well, especially around mm. the worries around arrears, which was, you know, was and still is a huge problem. Mm. Um, on the credit servicing regime, you mentioned in scope loans. What is the credit that is within within that scope? Uh, I suppose if we go back to the imperative for creating the category of credit servicing firm, this is to ensure that where individuals had regulatory protections, where the loan was advanced, that they continue to have them uh, where the loan is sold on. So as we've discussed, lending to natural persons is a regulated activity and so would have had the benefit of consumer protections day one. So that category of loans to a natural person within the state, subject to that carve out for high net worth individuals, is an in-scope loan within the scope of the credit servicing regime. Then there's a, an, also an SME element to the credit servicing regime loans. So only where the credit has been lent day one 
by an authorised lender, such as a licensed bank, uh, an SME loan is within the category of the credit servicing firm. And in broad terms, an SME is a business employing fewer than 250 people and with either or both of an annual turnover of up to 50 million and or a balance sheet value of up to 43 million, taking appropriate account of linked or partner enterprises. So the objective here is that where day one, the SME borrower, even a corporate one, had the benefit of regulatory protections because it was advanced the loan by a bank. And as we know, the business of a bank is regulated as a whole. It should not lose those protections where the loan has been sold to a third party. If a firm's credit servicing activities relate only to corporate SME credit, which has been acquired from an unregulated entity, because as we've seen, lending to a corporate entity by a non-bank is not a regulated activity. The firm is not required to be authorised as a credit servicing firm to the extent that it either acquires those loans or performs management or administrative activities in relation to those loans. As at 15 August 2022, 18 credit servicing firms have been registered in the state and an additional three are availing of transitional authorization status. And there are also specific statutory frameworks that exist for the regulation of high cost credit providers, aka money lenders, credit unions, and on post. So, and as mentioned, there are other lenders that don't require to be regulated at all because they're, for example, niche day one lenders to corporate borrowers, such as in the commercial real estate market. To summarize, would it be correct to summarize that banks? Um, are subject to an EU authorization regime, whereas retail credit firms are subject to, and and credit servicing firm are subject to regulation within our our own domestic regime. Yes, yeah, that's absolutely correct. So credit institutions are authorized at EU level. The license or authorization is issued by the ECB. Non-bank lending is currently not harmonized at EU level now. There is this directive which is going to come into play from December 2023, which um, under which an EU harmonized authorization regime will apply to credit servicing firms. Now, under this definition, credit servicing firms are not loan owners, but their firms carry out management and administration activities with borrowers. And this regime will apply only to non-performing loans acquired from licensed credit institutions. Now, in contrast to our existing regime, it'll extend beyond consumer and SME credit to all borrowers. So there will be as the necessity for some amendments to our domestic regime to reflect this proposed EU harmonized regime. Um, so uh, other than that though, the authorization of retail credit firms and credit servicing firms is currently subject, as you've said, to a domestic regulated framework with the central bank that directs supervisors. The downside for credit servicing firms and retail credit firms is that because there isn't an EU authorization regime for non-bank lenders, no passporting regime exists into other EU jurisdictions. So the lender needs to investigate the local regulatory regimes in other EU jurisdictions before starting to lend in that other jurisdiction and obviously different regimes will apply depending on the jurisdiction.
So if we can talk about, you know, the, the persons, you know, individuals and, and legal persons who have the benefit of consumer protection regulation in Ireland, and if we could talk about the category of customer to which um, the general principles of, of the CC, CPC, Consumer Protection Code, apply, because, you know, they are ultimately, while, you know, while there is, you know, prescriptive rules, they are ultimate fallback. So if you could talk a bit about that for our listeners. The CPC is a cross-sectoral domestic set of rules which apply to all in-scope financial services in Ireland. It's been described by the central bank as the centrepiece of our consumer protection framework in Ireland. The current version of the CPC came into effect on the 1st of January 2012. This is currently undergoing substantive review A discussion paper on the code was issued by the central bank in October 2022, and that's to be followed in 2023 and 2024 by a formal consultation on revisions to the CPC. So the CPC, as you know, starts off with those 12 general principles, and these principles apply to the regulated activities carried out by regulated entities operating in the state in respect of customers in the state. And while these principles sound very general, listeners should be aware that they have real teeth. They've proved very fertile ground for enforcement action on the part of the central bank. So, for example, in the case of the tracker mortgage examination, which to date has resulted in very significant sanctions on some banks ranging from 18 million to 96 million, the regulatory breaches identified were predominantly contraventions of the general principles of either the CPC 2006 or the CPC 2012. And from a risk management perspective, real lessons could be learned by regulated firms in carefully examining those contraventions. So they related to matters such as a failure to have adequate systems and controls in place, failing to act with due skill, care and diligence in the best interest of customers, not making full disclosure of all relevant material information in a way that seeks to inform the customer, not acting fairly in the best interest of their customers and the integrity of the market, and failing to correct errors and handle complaints speedily, efficiently and fairly. But that's another topic in itself, Cathy, really. Thanks, Nora. And um, so we have this category of customer under CPC, to which the general principles of the CPC apply. Um, To drill down, who qualifies as a customer under the code? This category of customer under the CPC is essentially any person in the state to whom a regulated firm provides or offers to provide a product or service within the scope of the code and any person in the state who asks for such a product or service. So in general terms, this includes all individuals and entities with a legal personality such as corporates in the state availing of financial services within the scope of the code or who are offered such services. While some of the general principles don't apply to particular business, for example, some of the principles are excluded for consumer credit within the scope of the European Consumer Credit Regulations, the bulk of the principles apply to lending. And listeners should, of course, note that as matters stand, these general principles do not apply to a corporate borrower where the the loan is made day one by a non-bank lender as that's currently not a regulated activity. Nora, I hear you mention a number of times products or services or business within the scope of CPC. So 
what business falls within the scope of CPC and in turn the general principles and I suppose just as importantly what falls outside of it? So the CPC is cross-sectoral so in general terms the CPC and the general principles thereof apply to all lending so for example personal mortgage and corporate including SME lending, insurance, payments, e-money activities and debt management business carried out in Ireland with effect from 16 May 2022, consumer buy now, pay later, known in short BNPL credit and consumer hire and hire purchase arrangements, including personal contract plans, are now regulated by the central bank and so subject to regulatory rules such as the CPC. So you've said what business is out of scope and uh, that's a key question. So, for example, the CPC does not apply at all to investment business within the scope of MIFID, uh, and that largely that arises from the interplay between uh, European rules and domestic rules and the maximum harmonization uh, nature of significant parts of MIFID II. Uh, also, the CPC does not apply to business including reinsurance or bureau de change business. And some of the general principles, as I mentioned, are excluded for particular sectors of business. And again, because of the interplay between maximum harmonization principles of the EU Consumer Credit Directive and the Payments Services Directive 2 um, and the Electronic Money Directive, uh, the information principles do not apply to activities within the scope of, of the activities within the scope of those directives. So subject to those exceptions, the general principles apply to all regulated financial services business within the state undertaken by regulated firms in respect of customers in the state. So they have a wide reach. Thanks, Nora. So in general terms, the, the, the general principles of the CPC apply to the conduct of in-scope financial service business to all customers of regulated firms, being individuals and corporates in the state. Then many of the more granular requirements of the CPC uh, apply to the subcategory of consumer. So could you go into a bit more detail about what a consumer is under CPC? The definition of consumer is quite widely drafted under the CPC. So it includes all individuals, whether or not acting for business or personal purposes, and also groups thereof, including, for example, partnerships or partnerships with a legal personality, such as LLPs, but only a corporate entity having an annual turnover on a group or standalone basis that does not exceed 3 million in the previous financial year. So there is that 3 million threshold that applies to corporate entities. And the individual chapters of the CPC dealing with consumers as defined are quite extensive. So they deal with matters such as contingent selling, contact, payment of fees and commission, conflicts of interest, knowing the consumer, provision of information, suitability and advertising. There is a subcategory of personal consumer to which some of the credit related requirements of the code apply. And I'll mention that later on. And just to say, as I've said before, 
there are some provisions of the CPC that have been disapplied to particular activities. So, for example, uh, some of the provisions dealing with suitability uh, wouldn't apply uh, in relation to uh, credit within the scope of the consumer credit regulations and, for example, payment services or electronic money services. But the key point to note here is that all individuals are included in the definition of consumer under the CPC, but only those corporate entities meeting the 3 million annual turnover threshold qualify. An individual will qualify as a consumer under CPC even if they're acting for business purposes. However, under other regulations, for example, the unfair contract terms regulations, the individual must be acting outside of their business in order to qualify as a consumer. Is that the case, Nora? Yes, yes. So the definition of consumer under the CPC is quite dra widely drafted because it does include all natural purpose persons, even if they're acting for business purposes. However, a more narrow definition applies to the definition of consumer. And this moves us on to our next question. There's very important EU-derived statutory rules. What is the interpretation of consumer under those rules? So the classic definition of consumer under EU-derived legislation, and with which many of your listeners will be familiar, is a natural person acting outside of their business trade or profession. So this is, in general, the definition that applies under the Consumer Credit Act 1995, the EU Consumer Credit Regulations 2010, the EU Mortgage Credit Regulations 2016, the EU Distance Marketing Regulations 2004, and the Consumer Protection Act 2007, which implement in part the, the Unfair Commercial Practices Directive. So the definition of consumer also has uh, relevance in the payment sphere. So for example, certain mandatory transparency conditions and information related requirements under the payment services regulations cannot be contracted out of where the payment service user is a consumer. And again, the definition of consumer is that classic definition of a natural person acting for purposes other than his or her trade, business or profession. A similar definition of consumer is included in the Consumer Rights Act 2022, which has been described as the most significant overhaul of consumer contract law in Ireland in 40 years and was commenced pretty much in its entirety on the 29th of November 2022. Thanks, Nora. So under uh, legislation deriving from the EU, as you've, you've discussed, a consumer must be an individual and cannot be a corporate. How has this definition of consumer been interpreted by the Irish courts? When is an individual treated as acting outside their business? Sure. And as you've signalled, Cathy, this has been a long-standing issue and the resolution of it has not necessarily been straightforward or indeed has occurred um, at this stage. So just to say, traditionally in Ireland, reflecting the case law of the European courts, in a lender-borrower context, a fact-specific objective private consumption test is applied. So specifically, an individual has been treated as acting as a consumer, i.e. outside of their business, when they enter into a contract such as a loan agreement for the purposes of satisfying their private consumption needs. So if you're entering into a contract 
for the purposes of satisfying those private consumption needs, you are viewed as a consumer under Irish jurisprudence. Now, the leading Irish case on that topic is the uh, judgment given by Mr. Justice Peter Kelly in AIB versus Higgins. That was the case in 2010. It involved clearly uh, commercial activity. The lender was seeking judgment for over 6.3 million against the borrowers a partnership, which had borrowed funds for the purposes of developing lands in County Meath. The borrowers claimed that because they hadn't been treated as consumers under the CCA, i.e. the Consumer Credit Act 1995, the loan facility was unenforceable. And short shrift was given to this argument. Um, Mr. Justice, Mr. Justice Kelly decided that because the borrowers were engaged in the business of property investment and its development for profit, they were not satisfying their private consumption needs. So they were not acting as consumers and the consumer protections set out in the 1995 Act did not apply. So subsequent Irish case law has also rejected the argument that the borrowers were acting as consumers where the purposes for which the borrowers were acting were manifestly commercial. So examples of a case law where this argument that the individuals were acting as consumers was rejected, including circumstances where loans to borrowers to fund a site purchase for the purpose of a mixed commercial residential development uh, were made or for the purchase of land overseas for the dual purpose of residential property development and significant farming business. So in these cases, because the courts did not accept that they were acting as consumers, the individuals in question could not get the benefit of applicable consumer protection uh, requirements under, in those cases, the Consumer Credit Act 1995. Thanks, um, Nora. So an individual is not acting for private consumption needs and cannot be treated as entitled to the significant consumer protections under EU-derived legislation where they're engaging in something that is manifestly a business, such as significant property development, um, to summarise. So, um, but what if an individual is borrowing for the purposes of funding a buy-to-let to ultimately earn an income for retirement? Um, could it not be argued that in this case, the borrower is acting to satisfy private consumption and so is a consumer? Um, and I know this is this is something that has been troubling lenders uh, over the decades. Yes, no, for, certainly since 1995. Um, so as matters currently stand, an absolutely unequivocal answer can, can't be given to this question, Cathy. But just to say... The Irish courts have tended to narrowly interpret the definition of consumer. So where the purpose of the loan might be argued to be more in line with your example and arguably to satisfy private consumption needs, the argument that the borrowers were acting as consumers has been rejected by the Irish courts. So the Irish courts have rejected the argument that a borrower of a loan funding investment in a geared property fund was acting as a consumer, even though the borrower argued the loan was for retirement purposes. And similarly, the Irish courts have decided that borrowers of loans funding the purchase of buy-to-let residential properties were not acting as consumers, even where the argument was made 
that the property was for the personal use and benefit of their children. And so the loan was for the private consumption needs of the borrowers and their family. And here, the High Court took the view that as the aim of the loan agreement was ultimately for the purposes of making a profit, the borrowers could not have been acting as consumers. So that was the Gunning case. And the name of the, the judge was Miss um, Justice Leonie Reynolds. So the argument that a borrower was acting as consumer has, however, been given a more sympathetic hearing by the High Court in a limited number of cases on the basis that even though the purpose of the loan was for the funding of investment activity, such as property or investment funds, the proceeds of that activity were to satisfy private consumption needs. So the borrowers were acting as consumers. Now, these decisions have been taken at interim stage, so didn't proceed to final consideration. And just to say for what it's worth, the view taken by me in my book is that exacting consumer protections should be faithfully safeguarded and in turn applied to those most in need of them. So in my view, individuals borrowing for purposes intended to generate a profit, irrespective of whether that profit is ultimately applied towards the satisfaction of private consumption needs should not be treated as a consumer. That said, recent case law of the European and English courts appears to envisage a wider approach. Now, these cases have largely centered on jurisdictional rules around the choice of law and particular derogations given to consumers in these circumstances. So they might be argued to have a more limited application. Uh, but in these cases, the, court has, the courts have not challenged the treating as consumers of sophisticated individual investors engaged in complex investment activity um, as consumers. Nora, isn't there um, a Supreme Court decision due on the the Irish case that you were you were discussing earlier? So, well, Cathy, they were due to uh, issue a decision on it. You're right. Uh, there was a case which had been accepted by the Supreme Court. Um, where it had agreed to rule as a matter of general public importance uh, on the issue as to whether the borrower was acting as a consumer. Uh, now, this case did have um, a significant amount of commercial activity uh, involved. So it involved the purchase of lands in Slovakia, on which it was intended that approximately 80 houses would be developed. In any event, there's no real point in going into any further detail on the case because I understand that it has settled. So it would have been interesting to get the views of the Supreme Court, even on that case, uh, because it may well have had relevance to the case involving an individual engaging in limited investment activity for retirement purposes, such as funding a buy to let, and so bring clarity to that issue. But we're going to have to wait a bit longer uh, for another case uh, to uh, be accepted by the Supreme Court on that point. Well, Nora, just to, to clarify, why is it such a big deal for an individual to make this argument? Um, what would be the consequences for a lender if an individual who should have been treated as a consumer is actually not treated as, as a consumer? So from a lending perspective, there's, of course, regulatory implications for a, a lender who's not complied with applicable consumer protection rules, which may expose the lender to risk of administrative sanctions at the suit of the central bank or a redress programme similar to the tracker mortgage examination or to the risk of commission of a criminal offence. But I think the core of the issue and what you're likely getting at, Cathy, are the civil consequences as between lender and borrower. 
if the uh, an individual who should have been treated as a consumer is not treated as one. So the most serious potential consequence of this is under the Consumer Credit Act 1995. So if a lender does not comply with certain requirements of Section 30, um, which requires the signing and sending of the written credit agreement and guarantee to the borrower and guarantor within 10 days, and the inclusion in the agreement of specified information, the credit agreement, any related guarantee or any related security given by the consumer or guarantor are unenforceable, which is a calamitous consequence for a lender, as it would mean that a lender cannot recover its loan. Now, I should make the point that Section 30 has less relevance in the current banking environment. It doesn't apply in all cases, including mortgage lending. In addition, unenforceability of the credit agreement wouldn't arise on breach in the case of a personal loan within the scope of the EU consumer credit regulations, i.e. a loan entered into on or after 11 June 2010 for an amount of £75,000 or less, although the guarantee may still be unenforceable. But it certainly has relevance to a large swathe of loan agreements that are already in place. And also other potential consequences arising from a general failure to comply with financial services legislation includes that very broad statutory right of action under section 44 of the central bank supervision and enforcement act 2013 and what that does is it gives a statutory right to a borrower to sue the lender for any loss or damage suffered arising from a general failure to comply with financial services legislation. It's largely been untested before the Irish courts, uh, but I should also say that it's an entitlement of all customers, not just consumers. Okay, Nora, so to sum up on where we are so far, in broad terms, the general categories of the beneficiaries of consumer protection legislation with a focus on lending in Ireland are customers being all corporates or individuals who have received or been offered an in-scope product or service in Ireland under CPC and to which the general principles of the code apply. Um, Then we have consumers as defined under CPC, which under it are the individuals in the state, whether or not they are acting for business purposes, but only those corporate entities meeting a 3 million annual turnover threshold in the previous financial year and then consumers as defined in EU derived legislation such as the Consumer Credit Act 1995 being a natural person acting outside their business trade or profession. Spot on Cathy. So I should also mention that some credit specific provisions apply under the CPC to personal consumers. And the definition of personal consumer is aligned with that of consumer under EU-derived legislation, being a natural person acting outside of their business, trade or profession, i.e. for the satisfaction of private consumption needs. And also to say that different definitions of consumer also apply in two other specific contexts that I'd like to draw attention to. So under the CB housing loan measures, or um, in relation to the financial services and pensions ombudsman. A consumer is a natural person acting outside of their trade, business or profession, i.e. acting for their own personal needs, or a sole trader, corporate or partnership whose annual turnover on a standalone or group basis does not exceed three million in the previous financial year, 
So the distinction in these cases between this definition of consumer and that under the CPC is that in these cases, the 3 million threshold applies to sole traders. And in contrast, as you'll recall, in the case of the CPC, all individuals are consumers without any monetary cap at all, whether or not they're acting for business purposes. And in addition, the SME regulations 2015, they apply to credit related activities with businesses employing fewer than 250 people and having either or both of an annual turnover of 50 million or less and an annual balance sheet total of 43 million or less on a group or standalone basis. Thanks, Nora, for that. There was actually a huge amount in that um, for our listeners to digest. So um, I think before we drill down into further into you know the eu regulation that, that we haven't looked at you know including consumer credit regs the mortgage credit regs the unfair contract terms regs um i think there's plenty in this to do to do a part two if if you're agreeable um so um so with that in mind perhaps we can we can uh draw this podcast to a close and um look forward to part two that's great kathy i look forward to that and see you on part two Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.